Hi, this is Alan Shartok, and I'm delighted to be in conversation today with Arlene Alda. Arlene Alda graduated Phi Beta Kappa from Hunter College, received a Fulbright scholarship, and realized her dream of becoming a professional clarinetist, playing in the Houston Symphony under the baton of Leopold Stokowski. She became an award-winning photographer and author who has written 19 books, including the one we're going to talk about today, Just Kids from the Bronx. She's the mother of three daughters and the grandmother of eight she and her husband, actor Alan Alda, live in New York City and Long Island. You can find out more at ArleneAlda.com. Welcome, Arlene Alda. Oh, thank you so much. Glad to be here, Alan. Well, this book was fun. Just Kids from the Bronx. And, you know, as I read it, I was so intrigued by the commonality of the stories. For example, Arlene Alda, it seemed to me that everyone who wrote a very brief vignette about their experiences in the Bronx talked about their one-bedroom apartments. Was every bedroom in the in the Bronx a one-bedroom apartment? No, actually, okay, just back up for a minute. I interviewed everyone, right, and then I put together their interview into a first-person story. Sure. So they didn't actually write the stories, but they did tell me their stories. And, uh, you know, it's an interesting impression, but most of the people—there are 64 people in the book. Most of the people don't talk about their one-bedroom apartment because most of them didn't have a one-bedroom apartment, oddly enough. But in the older generation, yeah, you know, whether it's Milton Glaser, even Mickey Drexler, certainly myself, a few of us talked in passing about the one-bedroom apartment. But, you know, everyone managed. It was very odd that a family of four or five, you know, mother, father, two kids, three kids. An uncle back from the some, war. Yeah. Yeah. Could somehow, you know, manage in, in these relatively small apartments. A lot of it, I think, had to do with the fact that we were like kids who came home from school, at least in my memory, came home from school, changed into what we call play clothes, and then went out to play in the street with our friends. So the apartment was used for eating and sleeping, basically, <laughs> and rainy days. And, and, of course, stickball played a big part in, the, in many people's memories until the cars came. The cars changed yeah. everything. Yeah, Avery Corman describes that beautifully. You know, his life was playing ball, you know, and the favorite game of his was basketball, and that they played in the schoolyard. But the stickball was, was ubiquitous. It was every neighborhood, and there were, you know, many, many neighborhoods in the Bronx. But every boy, I think, played stickball in the street. And then in the 19, late 1940s, car production started again after World War II. And there were cars in the street, and the kids couldn't safely play. So things shifted. It's so interesting over the decades, the differences in what the kids experienced were quite marked, I think. Arlene, how come so few kids who wrote so passionately about the Bronx ended up living there in their later years? The Bronx has a special feel to it. It's full of contradictions. In the southern part of the Bronx, it's more densely populated, mm. and it's poorer. But as you go into the north, northeast, northwest, you get into neighborhoods that feel much more suburban and a place where you would want to bring up your kids, you know, a place where you would feel perfectly safe and comfortable and a place where it's very beautiful. You know, the Bronx has the Bronx Botanical Garden or the New York Botanical Garden, it's called and the Bronx Zoo, as well as the New York Yankees. But the, the Bronx also has more parkland than any of the other boroughs. So you have 25% of the land in the Bronx is parkland, and it's, it's beautiful. So it, it's, it's just a very interesting borough, and I think there's a great deal of love that Bronxites have for their borough, either past or present. But not enough love to live there in their older age. 
In other words, there were a couple of people who you interviewed. You know, they were doctors. They had set up clinics, or they were in charge of clinics. Yeah, but yeah. but but for the most people, they were living in New York City. Well, I say New York City. It's all New York City, but of course in Manhattan. Manhattan. Uh, we yeah. call Manhattan the city. You're right. The city. <laughs> sure. My friends used to come from Queens and the Bronx. Say, I'm going to short talk. I'm going to the city. <laughs> No, that's absolutely right. I think Manhattan is not affordable for young people now, whereas the Bronx is very affordable. Mm -hmm. And it's up and coming. You know, Brooklyn is overdeveloped at this point, unless you want to live, you know, like an hour and a half away from the city. But basically the Bronx, it's kind of underdeveloped. Although there aren't beautiful brownstones there, there are wonderful apartment buildings and what we call private houses. You know, if you if you get into the northeast, you'll find a lot of two-story, one-story homes. And in Riverdale, which is an upscale part of the Bronx, of course, you find beautiful apartments for a fraction of what the same apartment might cost in either Brooklyn or Manhattan, and I really can't speak for Queens or Staten Island. I'm ignorant. You know, I have a friend named Elliot who I love very much. He's my age. He's 73, 74. And he lived in a group of buildings called the Commie Coops on Allerton Avenue. Oh, yes, my and- neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> And over his door was a hammer and a sickle. Oh, my <laughs> God. <laughs> and he had a friend, he had a friend named Mark, who used to go trapping raccoons in the park. So, I mean, there are a thousand great stories about this place. It's, it's wonderful. Yeah. The coops, I guess, were built as a social, socialist, yeah. communist enclave. And when I was growing up, they were just called the coops. We lived. I like, think we like, added commie to them. <laughs> <laughs> But they were across from, you cross the street and you're in the Bronx Park. So that's the raccoon story. But there's one guy in the book, Mark Cash, who's now a retired lawyer, who went to the Bronx Park with his little friends. He was about eight years old or so. You know, by the way, we were able to roam all over the neighborhood. It was perfectly safe without parental supervision. But when he was fully dressed for a Passover Seder and he he went to the park (laughs) and they saw the river, which is there, the Bronx River, and lo and behold, in the river was a mattress floating. So the kids thought, oh, this is great. They'll get on the mattress, and they'll be like Huckleberry Finn. So the kids get on this mattress in the river and realize before, you know, they go anywhere that this thing is sinking. So he gets out of the river, off the mattress, and the kid is, as I said, dressed up for a special occasion. And he comes home completely muddy and wet. And that's that's the way we kids were. It's a great story. I, I worked for many years at a camp, the Bronx House Camps in Copake, ah. New York, but it was an offshoot of the Bronx House on 990 Pelham Parkway. Uh-huh. And, and so you take this thing called Fordham Road, literally goes from the Hudson River all the way across the Bronx and has major medical schools, Einstein and everything else on it. Incredible diversity. But the camp that I worked in had a lot of black kids in it, which stopped later on, which was very interesting to me because a lot of us relished that part of our experience, and they moved it from the Bronx to Westchester, you know, the camp office and the rest of it. What was the racial mix that you remember, Arlene Alder, in terms of how people got along? Okay, just to put it into context, I'm 82 years old, so I was born in 1933, and I was allowed to go, and I lived in a section near Allerton Avenue, which is in the north, kind of northeast, but not as far east as you can go, which would bring you to Pelham Bay Park and Orchard Beach. But it was a neighborhood that was my neighborhood, was primarily Jewish and Italian, And the Jews, like my family, lived in apartment buildings for the most part. And the Italians lived in these wonderful little private houses with a little bit of land where there was a fig tree and a rose bush. And 
the girls I know got along very well. And I think the boys did too, but there were other neighborhoods that, you know, rumors would float, oh, rough kids from, you know, another, whatever the ethnic group was, I don't know, would come into neighborhood and try to pick a fight with the kids who lived in our neighborhood. But I was not aware of that. You know, growing up, our neighborhood, as I said, was Italian and Jewish. There were other neighborhoods that were Italian, Irish, Polish, German. They varied from one neighborhood to another. But I don't think there were a great number of African Americans or Hispanics until I think the 50s, maybe the late 40s, I don't know, but the 50s and 60s. Mm. And then there were a number of things that happened. And I'm really not expert in this, but there were two people in who I interviewed in the book, Sam Goodman and Lloyd Olton, who talk about the changes in the Bronx. Sam is a urban planner who works in the office of Ruben Diaz Jr., who's the Bronx Borough President. And Lloyd Olton is a Bronx historian and actually a historian who teaches at Fairleigh Dickinson University. But they describe, and especially Sam, describes the changes uh, that happened in the 60s and 70s, where there was a kind of urban flight, and there was a drug culture that came in. It was not just in the Bronx, but this is where drugs began to proliferate, where a broken welfare system placed people in housing where apartments were affordable. That's the city wanted to put them in places that they could afford. And eventually what happened was the borough became a poor borough. Whatever the economic base was, was gone. The diversity was gone, except for certain neighborhoods that held fast, and one of them is still very much thriving. It's the Arthur Avenue Belmont section of the Bronx, which is an Italian neighborhood. Now it's Italian and I think Albanian. But things keep shifting And the shift now is towards better days, those days Mm. of Fort Apache are long since gone. And I think Lloyd Olton's the one who said that there are more single homeowners in the Bronx now than ever were before. So, and there's a, and uh, uh, Ruben Diaz Jr. is bringing in more business opportunities, more jobs. It's good. It's all good. Things are moving in the right direction. I was going to ask you about your wonderful interview with Colin Powell, in which she talks about something I had heard before, being the Chavascoy. You want to talk about that a bit? (laughs) (laughs) Colin Powell was the most wonderful person to talk to, and he had terrific stories to tell, one of which was, you know, he's African-American, And he grew up in a neighborhood that was African-American and Italian and Jewish and, you know, a nice, diverse mix of people. But on Saturdays or the the Sabbath, Friday sundown until Saturday sundown, an Orthodox Jew is not allowed to do certain things. It's a day of rest. And that includes things like lighting candles or turning on a a light switch in a synagogue. And I think that Colin Powell was the one who was hired as the non-Jew, the Shabbos Goy, Goy meaning Gentile, who could do things, you know, for the Orthodox Jews that they themselves could not do on the Sabbath. But he also had a a great story about working in a a furniture store where the owner was Jewish and spoke with a a thick Yiddish accent and spoke the language of the Eastern European Jews at the time, which was Yiddish. And so Colin Powell learned Yiddish phrases, Yiddish words, and he could understand, you know, when people talked, he could understand a bit of what they were saying. So he was kind of like the guy 
who would overhear what people would be saying, customers would come in and talk about what they were willing to pay or what the prices were, and they'd talk in Yiddish, but <laughs> Colin Powell understood it, and then would report <laughs> what they said to the owner, Mr. J. Sixer, I think his name was. So <laughs> That's a great story. It is so American. Speaking of famous Americans, what about your interview with Al Pacino? What was that like? Oh, Pacino was great. You know, not only is he a great actor, but he's a wonderful storyteller, a terrific person. And, you know, he grew up in a divorced household at a time when that was not very common. Yeah. And his mother had to go out and work to support the family, and they lived with uh, his grandparents, her parents. And they lived in a tenement building in the South Bronx. And Pacino, from the time he was a little kid, showed his talent as an actor because his mother would take him to the movie theaters when he was, you know, four or five years old, and he'd come home and remember certain scenes and then act them out for his, <laughs> for his grandmother and grandfather. So at an early age, he, was, he knew what he was going to do. But the world on the roof for mm. him was, was a very, very interesting one, which shifted over the years from the time he was young to the time he got older. But early on, he would go up to the rooftop, and, and people did that, you know, in the, in the summer and late spring. It was a place at that time where fresh air was available, and it was a place where you—it was like your patio. And from his building, his patio on the rooftop, he could see the Empire State Building. And also here, he describes hearing all these wonderful voices— with different accents, you know, whether it was German mm. or Italian or, or Jewish or Polish. And the accents, he said, the sounds that he said it was like a Eugene O'Neill play. So, I mean, his use of language was just great. And yeah, then so. later on, uh, he and his friends would use the roof as a daredevil place. You know, they'd, they'd do the craziest thing, like walking on the ledges you know, the buildings were adjacent to one another, so usually there wasn't a space. So they'd walk on the edge of the rooftops, but then at one point he did see a space and backed off. <laughs> he, he said, I'm never going to do that again. The thing that stood in my mind, and perhaps I missed this, was the fact that they would take newspapers up there, the grandfather yeah. and he, and put the newspapers down on the black tar because it was going to melt, and they put their chairs on top of the newspaper. I think that's the, great. The rooftops had this tar, and in the summer, the tar became very sticky. I remember going up to our rooftop. Also, it was a place where... One would go to take photographs. Don't ask me why one would go to a rooftop to take a photograph, but maybe it was like an uncluttered space or whatever. You know, let's go up to the roof. We'll take a picture. <laughs> but that tar was, was there, and I remember, you know, the distinct smell of that tar. And the tar they used to use for the actual streets. They used to fix the streets, I guess, with sure. asphalt. But there sure. was a, a thick smell of that putrid mm. tar. I loved your interview with Robert Klein. It was particularly good. And uh, he hit me right in the gut. There is such a universal truth in something that he said, Arlene Older. He said, there were things in the Bronx everyone seemed to think of nostalgically and positively, but in part, that is because we were young and had fun. Sunday nights, he says, and this is where he got me, Sunday nights yeah. I do not have fond memories of. It took me many, many years to get out of the slight gloom because Ed Sullivan was on, and the next day was school, and as much as I'm thankful for the most wonderful free education was dull, except for a few courses in high school and a few in college, I believe to this day I have not gotten over that. You know, that the <laughs> idea that you had a choice between doing your homework, <laughs> and I think I have had eternal guilt feelings as a result of that. So interesting. Yeah, I just love talking with Robert Klein because, again, you know, he's a great comedian, so he can come up with funny lines and funny, you know, really astute observations. 
but he certainly has this kind of introspective ability. You know, he looked into himself, <clears throat> and what he came up with were some very interesting things because he said as much as he loved, you know, doing what he did in the Bronx when he was a kid, which was to have the freedom to love playing ball, to be able to go to the Yankees stadium, as much as he loved any of that, his image was of himself riding on a white horse through the countryside. And that image, you know, he, he saw it on television or saw it in the movies. He went to summer camps where I think he did learn to ride a horse. But he, at some point, knew that he wanted to get out of the city and out of the Bronx. And he did, ultimately. He, he moved up to Westchester County, and he just loves it. And he... It was very lyrical. His words are very beautiful in his descriptions of uh, of what he loves and what he really doesn't love. You uh, and I'm sorry. You and Alan, of course, are regarded as top feminists. Is there anything particular about the Bronx that brings out feminism? Hmm. Never thought of it in those terms. You know, everyone lives in their own head <laughs> until a certain age when you're when you look around and say, Oh no, other people have ideas too. You know, I was only aware well when I was young of what my own inclinations were. And I was very, very fortunate in that I had a mother who said this is America. You can be what you want to be. You can do what you want to do. You know, get an education. So she did not discriminate between boy and girl in our mm. family. And so in that respect, I really credit my mother for encouraging me to do what I wanted to do, which was slightly different than what a lot of the kids in the building were doing at least a lot of the girls. The boys, <laughs> there were two kids in the building who, who were interested in music, and music was my thing when I was young. So maybe they were my role models at first. But I never thought of myself as anything but someone who was going to do what was there, what was available. And having gone to Hunter College was also a wonderful way of fortifying uh, that image of, of accomplished women. And certainly Alan has always been a fair-minded person, and it seems incredibly unfair-minded, kind of blind, if you don't recognize that, you know, women and men uh, have equal abilities and should be doing what they can do in the workforce. Is that what attracted you to Alan, the fact that he was a fair-minded person? What attracted me to Alan was that he went to Fordham University in the Bronx and that we could actually date because guys from Manhattan didn't date girls from the Bronx because in those days, the boy picked up the girl at her apartment where she usually lived with her parents and then they went out to the movies or, uh, you know, we went out to the theater, we went to concerts, or we went for walks. And then he would bring me back to my parents' apartment. But what attracted me to him, outside of the fact that we could actually go out and spend time together, was that he was fun. I mean, he was a guy, not only was he smart, and he was cute, and he was polite, and he was just a really nice guy. But we had fun together. We we both had been to Europe the year prior to our meeting. He went on his junior year abroad from uh, Fordham, and I had the Fulbright. And that was like a pivotal year for both of us in that we had a whole new range of experience to share and talk about it. And it was exciting. Where you know, did you... We both were... were we thought of ourselves as, in quotes, artists, and that was our commonality, that the art meant so much to us. Where did you actually meet him, first time you ever laid eyes on him? We had a mutual friend uh, who was also a musician, and she uh, 
always invited friends over to play chamber music for fun in her apartment in Manhattan. And she also would invite people to listen. And the first time Alan and I met, I was playing some chamber music in our friend B's apartment, and Alan was was one of the audience. And at that time, you know, we were introduced, hello, how are you? And that was the end of the evening. But then uh, maybe a month or two later, the same person, B, invited, oh, about a dozen people for dinner. That was a time when we actually started talking and at that dinner party. And at one point, a rum cake, which had been cooling on the top of the refrigerator in the apartment in the kitchen, had slid off the top of the old shaking, vibrating refrigerator and and fell to the floor, unfortunately or fortunately. And Alan and I were the only two people who ran in with our forks and ate the cake off the floor. So that was that was the cement of our relationship. That's great. From then on, we were fast friends. That, that's really great. Um, you mentioned your clarinet playing, and I'm fascinated by that. You know, you succeeded. You learned how to, unlike all the other clarinet players that I have known in my life, you actually got good at it. But it was not a girl's instrument, right? Well, in those days, you know, yes and no. It was not commonly thought of as a girl's instrument. You know, the piano was the girl's instrument, or a violin was a girl's instrument. But I think it was considered unladylike to play a wind instrument. However, if you had walked into the band class at the Vanderchilds High School where I went, you would see boys and girls playing all kinds of instruments. So, you know, the, the common prejudice was really based on some old-fashioned notion of what girls and boys should be doing. But in reality, it wasn't quite so, except in the, in the profession itself. There, were, there was discrimination against women in the major orchestras. Sure. As a matter of fact, even the New York Philharmonic, until more recent history, did not have women in the orchestra, period. Any instrument, maybe a harpist here and there. But, you know, the blind auditions where you, you audition behind a screen so that the person listening wouldn't be able to tell if it was a man or a woman, that didn't come in until much, much later. So I was just very fortunate that Stakowski at the time didn't discriminate against women in the orchestra so that I had a chance to audition for him and to get the job that I did. So again, you know, things have shifted. But at the time, I think the public perception was that boys and girls should should have certain roles and, you know, you shouldn't cross those lines. How hard was it to play in a major orchestra like that? I played there for one season, and it was never a question of hard. It was thrilling. I mean, that was what I had trained for, and it was absolutely wonderful. He was one of the best and most interesting conductor. And we played, you know, the, all the major works that, that I had only known as a student or had played in student orchestras or a few community orchestras and one training orchestra. So to, to be able to play under a great conductor in a, in a wonderful orchestra was, was a thrill. You know, I was a young, a young woman, and this was just the best thing that had ever happened to me at that time. What do you remember about Hunter? You, you and I are both Hunter graduates. What do you remember about Hunter? Hunter, okay, I got on the subway from Allerton Avenue <laughs> and took a, an hour-long subway trip. I changed from an express to a local to get off at the right stop. And Hunter was a vertical building. Indeed. It's not like it is now where they have many different schools connected with, you know, Hunter, uh, the School of Nursing, the School of Social Work. It was much more just a classical college. 
And we did not have men. It was all women. And to me, it was very cut and dried. I had gone to Queens College for one year because Queens was known as the place for music. And it was, but it was a brutal trip from the Bronx. And after one year, I decided this is, I can't do it. I'm worn worn to a frazzle. But I remember at Hunter, it was a very welcoming place. And, you know, once I think you find your your niche, it's wonderful. It, It was a home base for me. You know, they had an orchestra. They had an active music department, even though it wasn't geared to high performance level. There were wonderful people there, and I got a very good education. That's certainly representative of what I remember being in the Bronx, but I used to come down, as I think I told you at one point, that used to come down to the Manhattan campus because any a lot of the activities were done out of there, like the Hunter Arrow, which... Oh, yeah, the... <laughs> the, the Hunter Arrow. The, the newspaper? The newspaper, right. Or yeah. the chorus, which I wasn't very good at, but I thought it was a great opportunity to meet women. And then there was also... <laughs> <laughs> oh, you were well in the minority. <laughs> oh, indeed I, indeed, indeed I was, which is a good thing, you know, because I had precious little to work with. So it was... Uh, <laughs> so... So it was great fun, and it was a great school. It was a great school, and, uh, you know, I've always thought so highly of it. What train did you get on from the Bronx? Do you remember? Was it the IRT, or was it the— Yes, it was the IRT. Now they have numbers. Yeah, now it's no good anymore. Yeah, yeah, but I don't remember, (laughs) you know, the designations were really the IRT, the BMT— The IND. The IND. Those were the three subway lines. Right. And right. now they have numbers and letters. But I got on the IRT at Allerton Avenue, which was an elevated yep. subway. And then at a certain point after, an, uh, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 minutes, it went underground mm. and became a true subway. You know, then you were in the dark. And I guess we used to pace, you know, as a kid, you know, pace the uh, the rides by... Not only the stops, knowing the stops along the way, but, oh, yeah, this is a stop where you go underground. (laughs) Did you ever have a bad experience on the subway? No, but what I remember is early on, my father would take me down to museums in Manhattan, and I was terrified of going near the edge of the platform because I remember my father's voice saying, don't go close to the edge. Don't go near the, you know, afraid that I would fall onto the track somehow. Boy, was he right. Uh, <laughs> and then, <laughs> by the way, those the trains squealed a lot. I mean, they oh, yeah. on the tracks, they made a lot of noise in mm. those days. Mm. I don't know if they still do. They do. My wife is from yeah. Hudson, New York. She didn't grow up as I did in Manhattan. And when we go into the subway, she's forever putting her hands over her ears. <laughs> Uh, it's still noisy, yeah. yeah it's still noisy. <laughs> so you married this guy, and he becomes everybody's favorite human being in the whole world. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, well, there's no question about it. I mean, it's unbelievable. So how did you survive that? I mean, how do you survive the fact that your husband is the most popular man in America? At one point that, you know, uh, you're talking at one point in his career— uh, well, no, because know, I watch very uh, fortunate. No, because I watch Mash every night, sometimes five times. <laughs> you're, you're more devoted than I am. <laughs> no, but you know, there's a public perception of a person who becomes sure. well known, and then there's the private person. And I, I, I guess I never thought of. My husband, in the same way as as a stranger would, or a fan, or you know someone else. Mm-hmm. So to us, to us both, and we were living our lives. We had children to bring up. We have you know all the things that most people have to do in their lives. We did, and then there were these extra perks that were that were kind of nice. And that there were pressures because, first of all, Alan worked in California, 
and we lived in New Jersey at the time. So he would commute weekends when he wasn't working on the mass set. He would commute home to our house in New Jersey just to be with us. And that, okay, that went on for seven years for four months of those seven years every year. And then in the summertime, the kids were off, and we'd all end up in Los Angeles with him. And then when the kids went off to college, I was free to go to uh, Los Angeles, and, and then he didn't have to commute. So there were tough times in terms of energy-wise and in terms of you know keeping the family together while we were really apart for part of each week for part of the year. But you stayed together, which is not typical, at least from what we read, about, you know, 50% of Americans it's not typical of, and it's certainly yeah. not typical of people who are in high-profile places like that. But you guys were terrific in that you set a role model for everybody. Well, that's a big <laughs> undertaking. I don't think, I don't think uh, of, of us in that way. But, you know, most of our friends in California, in Los Angeles, who were also in basically in the same business, either writing or acting, all of them had long, stable marriages. So, I mean, we, I guess we found like-minded people. I don't know. We just, that's who we, we were, who we are. We are fortunate, I must say. And, you know, we wake up every day happy to be alive, happy to be together. We're both busier than ever. It's wonderful. Very, very fortunate. Well, you know, I have a very limited visibility. I run these radio stations, and people come up to my, and I'm on at 7.45 every morning, and people come up mm -hmm. to my wife and say, I wake up with your husband every day. <laughs> which they all think is very funny. But um, I wonder, I mean, that's got to be a lot of pressure, you know, when people just adore somebody that way. Again, I didn't think of it as pressure at all. To me, that was make-believe. And that, as I said, it's a public persona. I think the only pressure I, I would feel, and that's, that certainly doesn't apply to nowadays, but at the height of the MASH fame, if we were be out just walking on the street, and as I said, you know, most people are in their own heads. They're not thinking of what another person is thinking of them. So we'd just be walking and talking, and, you know, people would come up and mm. always wonderful in terms of their compliments, but it might be in the middle of a conversation <laughs> that we were having or in the middle of a meal where you're talking and just a reminder that, you know, we have to remember, okay, out in public, it's different than, you know, having dinner at home or, or just talking with friends. But I, I never thought of it as pressure, per se. Mm. I was riding on the subway with Sam Waterston after I did an interview with him down in New York, and there was a lady across the way on the train, and the train was almost deserted for some reason, <laughs> and the lady was knitting. And every once in a while, her eyes would come up and look at him. <laughs> <laughs> so I whispered in his ear, I said, you know, Sam, I think you've been made. And he said, I know. <laughs> I know. I thought that was great. How did you pick the people in the book? There was a random pick at first. You know, it started, I, I went back to the building I grew up in, and I went back with Mickey Drexler, who's CEO of J. Crew, And uh, Mickey had grown up in the same building, and I didn't know that at the time. I I didn't know Mickey until several years ago. So that was a, an incredible coincidence. And at the time that we went back, that was really a, an inspiration for me to talk to people who I, I knew who grew up in the Bronx who had become quite successful. So I started interviewing people I knew uh, there was Al Pacino and Martin Bregman, a producer, and Regis Philbin, of course, mm. who lives in our current building in Manhattan and who's a friend of ours, and uh, Mary Higgins Clark I had met at one point. And these people were very gracious and generous in giving me of their time and, 
and wonderful interviews. And when I had a core group like that, you know, I had maybe eight or nine interviews, I realized that the stories were great, but they were of a certain generation. They were a certain time period. But the story of people growing up in the Bronx, of successful people from the Bronx, spans until today. So I then started interviewing younger people, and that was less random because I didn't know many younger people. Mm -hmm. And I just started networking with those I knew, and there were lists on the Internet of successful people from the Bronx, and one would recommend the other. So ultimately, the book, I stopped at 64 other interviews and stories, and they span from Carl Reiner, who's 93, down to someone called Eric Zeidler, who's 23, and, and everyone in between. So it went from totally random to wanting to cover the decades is there and any, wanting to also cover different professions. Is there anybody in the book, Arlene Older, that didn't make the cut? <laughs> in other words, is there anybody uh, you interviewed that didn't make the cut? Yes. Okay, that's a good answer. <laughs> that's a, that's a very <laughs> good answer. That's a very good answer. Did you get a telephone call saying, hey, how come I'm not in it? <laughs> no, was actually, because there was always a caveat. <laughs> yeah, you always told them. You yeah. know, this is, you know, trying to fit yeah. the stories together. Some may or may not work. We do the same thing here on public radio, I can tell you. But you could be very discerning with this. And I know, I noticed that within the book, you've made an attempt to have some real diversity, religion, race, this yes. kind of thing. It, yes. Was, that was purposeful, right? Yes, that was purposeful as well. Again, I didn't want it to be non-representative. The Bronx is known as a borough of immigrants. And over the years, the, the shift of groups who have lived in the Bronx is, you know, is quite well known. And I wanted that shift to be represented. And, oh, wonderful stories by... <laughs> Some of the younger people, you know, they're graffiti artists mm. who I interviewed who who really opened my eyes from their point of view as to what they were doing when they were doing graffiti on the trains as young kids. And what were they and doing? Basically, what mm. one of the guys described, he said, you know, this was our art. And can you imagine, he said, we, we do our our thing in the Bronx, and then the train would go from the Bronx through Manhattan <laughs> into Brooklyn and then back again, and all these people would see that we were here. You know, that wonderful thing of, uh, it's almost like Kilroy was here, exactly. you know. We're here, we matter, we're, we mean something. And then ultimately, you know, these guys became very successful and they have a uh, company called Tats Crew and they take commissions and they're in art galleries and they give lectures and they are as charming as can be. And they started out as young kids, totally penniless, who were interested in the art of graffiti. I mean, it, I just love their story. Arlene Alder, when you did, when you did these interviews... Was there ever a time, I, mean, I think I'm going to just get a yes now, that you interviewed somebody and you said, as it started and it wasn't going well, that you said to yourself, uh-oh, <laughs> we find that on our interviews sometimes. I just wonder, did that ever happen to you? There were a couple of people who I talked with who ended up in the book, actually. And while we were talking while you know we were the interview was going on I kept thinking I don't know if there's a story here I don't know what mm. what there is I can't I can't get a handle on anything and I can't get it from the person and uh, there's you know like a disconnect but ultimately you know each story feeds into the other and there's there's a kind of undulation of emotions and incident. And oddly enough, a couple of stories that I thought were not 
not really that interesting turned out to be very interesting mm. because they filled in part of a picture, part of this puzzle of the decades of of the way kids were living and what their perceptions were, what their own experiences were. So though although there may not have been a lot of emotion, let's say, in in the conversation, what I didn't see at the time was the possibility that there was actually information there that was very interesting. So you know, I was very fortunate outside of the few that, that uh, did not end up in the book. The stories that I was worried about were nothing to be worried about, although at the time I didn't feel that way. <laughs> So you take it on the road. Now, uh, you'll be in Great Barrington at the prestigious Mahewi Theater, I think, on August oh, 1st. Oh, yes. August, August 1st. 1st. We'll see you there. And and what's that like when you go out in public about the book? Oh, it's great. It's absolutely great. And what I love is that there are people uh, with not only connections to the Bronx, but people who love stories. And the audiences have been so receptive um, uh, I've been out of <laughs> the metropolitan area a little bit, uh, more coming up, as you said, but uh, the, the reception has been terrific. And I'm always surprised that, you know, in Washington, D.C., for instance, or it was just outside of Washington, when I asked the audience uh, how many of you grew up right. in the Bronx or have relatives from the Bronx, Oh, quite a few. There's a big diaspora right there, whether it's aunt, uncle, cousin, best friend, grandma, grandpa, you know, and then and then uh, we we move all over the country. So uh, it's been very interesting in that regard. And also, these are stories that basically mm. they're not only human interest stories, but they're quintessential American success stories. Uh, and th- that was beautiful to to see as the as the book unfolded in front of me with with the uh, interviews that uh, these success stories are what America is really about why people still want to come to this land of opportunity as hard as it is now it still seems to be the place that uh, that people want to come to. And is there a commonality? If you had to, you know, honesty question, you know, based to everything you've learned, Arlene, is there anything you think that is common to all these stories? A couple of things stood out in my mind. One, the importance of mentors, teachers, uh, someone in, in one's life, a young person's life, who really is the voice of, yes, you can, yes, yes, you, you have it, or you, there are these opportunities, you can definitely do it if you apply yourself. I mean, there, there's a lot of mentoring uh, that seems to come up where teachers are picked picked out mm. by the person saying they really changed my life they yeah. they made me realize that i could achieve something and along with that when the good schools you know sure. one needs a good education for most most of the jobs Yes, and one, um, and one of the references, Arlene, that you kept making, which was interesting, or they kept making, is the reference was always to the Bronx High School of Science. But nobody that I knew ever called it the Bronx High School of Science. They always just said Bronx Science. And, yeah, and that, yeah. that was interesting. I, I thought maybe I, I detected an ed- editor's work there somewhere. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well you know, it's, it's funny. I, when I transcribed the conversations... It was however the, the schools yeah. were referenced. Yes. You know, so they, they, I went to the Bronx High School of Science or Bronx High School of Science. Yeah. I, I don't remember anyone ever saying I went to Bronx Science. Bronx Science, yeah. That's interesting, but I, I certainly recognize that as being a, 
you know, something that we would we would hear. The same way it was in Brooklyn Tech. We all referred to Brooklyn yeah. Tech, or or even music and art was M and A. But you know, that was a yeah. that was a whole other thing. Well, Arlene Alder, this was a great conversation. You've been so giving and so wonderful. We appreciate it so much because it's not often that you get to hear this kind of historical perspective, you know, on a borough or on anything else. We're out of time. We've been talking to clarinetist and award-winning photographer and author Arlene Alder. Her latest book is Just Kids from the Bronx. You can find out more at ArleneAlder.com. Arlene, it's so much fun to read the book. It's so much fun to talk to you, and we'll see you all soon. Arlene, thanks so much for joining us today. I'm Alan Chartok. Thank you, Alan. Pleasure being here. Couldn't have been better. Thank you, Arlene. You were wonderful. been listening to Dr. Alan Shartok, President and CEO of WAMC Northeast Public Radio and Professor Emeritus at the University at Albany. For more information on the In Conversation with Alan series or to order additional copies of this or any interview in the series, call 1-800-323-9262 or visit us on the web at wamc.org.